Hello and welcome to Hallway Talks with Louisa and Ria. This week we're doing a pre-election episode and we could not have imagined a better guest than NYU Wagner's Paulette Godard Professor of Public Service and founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service, Dr. Paul Light. Professor Light is the author of 25 books, the 2015 recipient of the John Goss Award for his exemplary career service in political science, and he just recently released an eight-part series for the Brookings Institute titled The Case for Major Government Reform. He talked to us about America's ability to deliver on promises made to citizens and the needed nonpartisan reforms. He also went over both candidates' proposals and he made some bold predictions about our election results. So sit back, grab some coffee, make sure you filled out and mailed your ballot, and enjoy the episode. Recorded October 23rd, 2020. Professor Light, thank you so much for joining us. I don't think we could have had a better guest for this pre-election episode. Your experience has, it's so diverse. You've studied American governance from so many different perspectives. You've studied presidential tenures. You've studied the government industrial complex, institutions and how they contribute to democracy, mechanisms of accountability and so forth. So what intrigues you most about the American governance that you've studied for decades? Well, right now, uh, what is perplexing me and occupying me is the fundamental erosion of capacity to deliver on the promises we make. Uh, Joe Biden, our presidential candidate, has made a lot of promises and they're all wonderful. He's activated policy designers all over the country, including some at the Wagner School. Um, and these folks are all working on ideas for fixing the tax code and strengthening health care and dealing with uh, climate change. We've got hundreds and hundreds of proposals, but we don't have an agenda right now on fixing broken agencies. And we are littered in the federal government and in many states right now with agencies that can no longer honor their promises to execute, faithfully execute, the policies that we hope to enact. That's a serious problem. We have seen it during COVID, but we have seen it increasing for the last 20, 25 years. So yes, I do study presidential appointments and I look at social innovation and sometimes I'll take a look at the civil service system, you name it. But at the end of the day, this is all about faithful execution of the laws. That's where I'm really uh, activated. And I've worked on Capitol Hill on statutes, for example, to help veterans who return from war with post-traumatic stress injury. The problem with the policies that we have made on that issue in particular is faithful execution. We've got great treatment uh, modalities. We've got great approaches to helping veterans who have been traumatized by war, but we have problems delivering, uh, problems getting veterans to come in for help. And so this is a recurring issue for me and it's what that uh, series for Brookings really looked at from my perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting how you frame that. 
In the series, we talk about how COVID exposed the failures in bureaucratic institutions like FEMA, CDC, FDA, and this goes down even to breaking the most simple process like printing and the disimbursement of stimulus checks. Indeed. So I guess my question here is, do you think this is partisan related or do you think that this is a more foundational problem with US bureaucratic institutions? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, that's, a, that's a great list. I mean, the president, Donald Trump, uh, put extra pressure, for example, on the IRS because he, he wanted his name. And actually, I'm, I'm not sure it was the IRS. It could have been the Small Business Administration. I mean, there was so much money pulsing through the system, but he wanted his name on the checks. And that was technically difficult. So he put pressure on the system. Imagine if you were standing you know, in a field with a number of houses that are already cracked, where the foundations have been weakened, where the roofs have been weakened. What happened with COVID is that this tsunami of stress, whether it was in the Small Business Administration and the Paycheck Protection Program, whether it was the CARES Act, whether it was FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the strategic national stockpile, one agency after another, including the agriculture department, which is responsible for assembling food school lunches. And we wanted some of that money uh, from the CARES Act to go into feeding people. Suddenly we see these agencies straining under great pressure and they start to come apart. Uh, we start sending checks to dead people. We always do that to some extent, but not at this level, billions uh, of dollars sent to the wrong people and so forth. So on one side of the equation is the fact that these agencies were already straining. We haven't had major reforms for decades. It's been 40 years since we last did a comprehensive overhaul of our civil service system. And let me tell you, it's not the baby boomers anymore who are applying for jobs in the federal government. It's the millennials and the Zs, and they're much less tolerant of delay than the baby boomers might have been 40 years ago. It's been 40 years since we last fixed our ethics rules through comprehensive reform, whistleblower protections, technology shortfalls. We're still using ancient technologies based on COBOL. And I'm guessing that you don't even know what COBOL is. It was the dominant no. <laughs> language of the computer period in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. We're still looking for people who know how to program the computers of the 1970s. So we had all of these problems already in place. Agencies that were straining to do their jobs were having trouble recruiting talented young people for uh, jobs in the civil service. And then COVID comes along and everything has to be done fast. And that starts to break the agencies. So what I've argued uh, in one of the posts there was that COVID-19 was a failure foretold by other breakdowns. We had the September 11th terrorist attacks, which were widely branded a failure of imagination. We never dreamed that terrorists might use aircraft, commercial airliners to take down uh, the Twin Towers or as a weapon against this country. In the same way, the president and his staff 
could not imagine that COVID would flare up and cross the country so quickly, right? We had failures of imagination. We had permissive, uh, pervasive permissiveness, which was at the root of the 2008-2009 uh, uh, financial collapse. We had one thing after another where we saw the federal government break earlier. We had exhaustion during Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the New Orleans hurricane. We had more during Hurricane Maria just last year. And then we had the complete depletion of our supply chain and the complete collapse of the Federal Emergency Management Agency just last March. Suddenly everything we were out of, et cetera, et cetera. So COVID comes and hammers our agencies. They're already weakened by a lack of attention, by a lack of repair, and we saw what happened. People didn't have enough PPE in the hospitals. People did not have rapid testing, and we still don't. We still don't have the testing we need. That could have been fixed long ago, but the agencies are broken. So that's where we are at this particular point. And as for Operation Warp Speed, I happen to have <laughs> been around when Star Trek, uh, we had warp drive during Star Trek. That was my generation's favorite sci-fi show. How has Operation Warp Speed done? It was stood up in March. If this is warp speed, then we better redefine the term. We are still slow, slow, and slow. <laughs> no, that, that's such a good point. You talk about the emergency response during COVID and how it has yeah. compared to 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, so many other disasters. And in one of your pieces for the Brookings Institute, you talk about how since the 1950s, reform has been small. Big yeah. ticket reform has not Ooh. really been something that has they have been doing. How does that look, what does that look like for the reform plans in the current candidates' promises or platforms? It's great. This, this confirms that somebody did read that piece on uh, legislative <laughs> response. Here's yes. what's happening now. We don't have the capacity to design the reforms that we need to enact. Um, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we had the Government Operations Committee in the House. We had the Bureau of the Budget and now the Office of Management and Budget. They were active. They were producing reform ideas. Uh, scholars were working on this. The public administration field was vibrant and strong, right? Um, now we, we don't have that capacity and the result has been tinkering, right? We go around with a little screwdriver and a little hammer and we kind of say, oh, let's fix this over here and let's do a little bit of technology reform over there. But it's been a long time since we've had comprehensive reform and it's not clear that we have the intellectual capacity right now to produce the major scale reform that we need. Joe Biden doesn't talk about reform. He's got a lot of proposals as we started, wonderful ideas, but he's gonna need help. Now I hear through the grapevine that some really talented people are lining up to provide help 
should Biden get elected? People who know how to make government agencies work. But the congressional committees are not capable at this point of writing that legislation. Uh, they've been decimated by turnover. They have been focused on impeachment. So we've got the government reform committee in the US House of Representatives that has spent the last three years on impeachment and we don't have much reform in the pipeline. Over in the Senate, we've had partisan control of the Senate Government Affairs and Homeland Security Committee, and there's nothing in uh, the refrigerator. There's nothing ready to unwrap and reveal. So we've got a lot of work to do right now. We're short on major reform, and we need to figure out a way to get it. Schools like Wagner, wonderful schools, great at policy design. We do have good people at Wagner who do public management, but overall we have a deficit in uh, this country right now in Washington and in many state capitals of people who know how to make programs work, how to hire people, how to deploy people, what kinds of technologies we need. In other words, reformers who know how things work not just what the goals are. So we've got work to do on this and I'm concerned about it. Yeah, and talking about reform, I think I want to dig in a little deeper on the nitty grits of it. Um, in your articles, you mentioned, I would say two types of policies, which are the evidence-based policies of the Obama era and yep. then common sense policies, right? What exactly are those policies? How do they interact? And what do you think that uh, rebuilding governance and government based on that oh, would look like? Look, the evidence-based is what we must always have. If there's one thing that the president's response or non-response to COVID shows, it's that science matters and that making policy based on hunch and reassurances like, oh, this will get be over by Easter. So get ready for big Easter services um, at your church. Um, get ready for the opening of the economy in June. Get ready, it's just around the corner, which is the latest iteration. We know that science matters. And our Dean at Wagner has been front and center on the policy evidence uh, movement and we've made progress there. At the same time, we don't want to make policy so complicated that it erodes the capacity for implementation through just common sense. Can we accomplish our goals through very simple designs? So it's evidence plus an understanding of the role of common sense in getting things done. We want to put them together. It is not one versus the other, it's an appreciation for both. Uh, so the common sense policymaking movement comes out of sort of moderate Republican quarters where we're saying, look, government needs to do things. We need to regulate the environment, but is there a way to do it that doesn't delay uh, uh, needed reforms and needed repairs in our institutions? It's a, it's a big challenge and we've got good folks uh, who are working on it. We don't have a lot of time uh, to wait here in terms of the repairs we need. We've got to get the next generation 
of civil servants into office, the next generation of nonprofit uh, providers, nonprofit and public and private uh, change agents. And we cannot wait uh, for long to do that. And that's where the blend of common sense and quick evidence uh, kind of fit in here. I mean, that's such a good way of melding the two together. And I wanna now take that forward to how Americans will react to the kind of reform that you're talking about. There are different levels of governance that American citizens ask for or want. Um, there are some who want more reform, uh, less yeah. government involvement, and candidates are kind of catering to those different sentiments. So where do you think American citizens right now in 2020, I mean, this is a hard question, but where do you think people are landing in terms of, do they really want more government involvement or do we want more freedom? Well, look, I, I, you know, we've been following this trend since 1997. We've been asking Americans regularly um, to think of uh, a couple of options for making government work. Do they prefer uh, very major reform. Now that's a weird way to frame a question. What does it mean, very major? I mean, what is that? But basically the way the question is asked says like extreme. So we say very major reform. The second option we provide is, well, uh, government is on balance doing pretty well and only needs some reform, right? So at the top of this list is people who say very major reform, government isn't working, it's inefficient and wasteful, we don't trust it to make the right decisions. In the middle are people who say, well, on balance, um, it only needs some reform. And then the third option is we, we say, okay, it doesn't need much reform at all. Now we've seen the number of Americans who say government needs very major reform rise from about a third, just over a third in 1997 to 60% today. And that number 60 uh, has been fairly steady. Americans want their government to work. Now, are there some who want a smaller government that does less? Absolutely. Uh, do, are there others who want a government that delivers more? Uh, absolutely too. So there are partisan differences here. But Americans want government to work to uh, value their uh, taxes and handle their taxes wisely. They're skeptical to a point about big government, but they do not want government to continue failing. Uh, and that is a common goal. We saw it in the debate last night that there are sharp disagreements between Dems and ours on what government should do, but Americans want government to succeed when it undertakes a task like protecting us from international terrorism, making sure a vaccine is available to everybody on time, making sure that the environment uh, is clean and sound. Americans are pretty frustrated right now. And I think that's one thing they see in Joe Biden is the possibility that we're gonna get back to work on government performance. You talked a lot right now about the distress in the government, and this does seem to be one of the most important obstacles for substantial reforms. One symptom of that maybe that we've been seeing is the questions of, will Trump accept the results of the election? Will he not? Will Democrats accept the results of the elections? 
do you think this is a double question? A, do you think that this is a legitimate concern? Or do you just think that it's a symptom of this distrust? And also, how do we break away of this cycle of one party just attacking the other and the other attacking the other and just compounding in this feeling of distrust? Well, it's easy to blame Donald Trump for all of this. Uh, he is without filter. I mean, he, he just says whatever's on his mind. When he says that he doesn't know whether he'll re accept the results of the election, it's a violation of democratic norms. He's free to say, if he wishes, that you know he wants to take a look at the results, but for him to hint that he might not accept the results is irresponsible. And there's not much we can do about it uh, except remove him from office. Now, whether he'll accept uh, an election result that removes him from office is really what worries a lot of Americans right now. If he loses and he has uh, what he thinks are good reasons to question the validity of the vote in a state like Pennsylvania or in Florida or Georgia or North Carolina, Illinois, uh, Ohio, Will he stand put and say he will not leave? And that's where Republicans and Democrats need to join arms and reinforce the democratic norms that we have. Um, a lot of this has been fueled uh, by uh, the development of new algorithms and new capacities and new techniques for dividing people uh, from each other. And we can't ignore uh, the Russian influence um, and Chinese influence on our elections through division and the effort uh, to have us fighting against each other. It's really time now where we have to grow up as leaders and basically stand together to protect the democracy. And I'm worried about it. And we should be. We, we, we see the evidence of Russian meddling again in our elections and we hear nothing from our president about how he's going to attack it. I mean, it's, it's a very troubling time and we should all be nervous about it. The answer to it is to come together, Dems and ours, um, to stand tall about protecting our democracy. And, and we have a rough ride ahead over the next 10, 15, 20 days as we see what happens. Absolutely, it's a rough ride indeed. <laughs> As we watch the upcoming election, I don't think that there's any way to know what to expect. But what topics do you think will really define how people vote in this upcoming election? What are the key drivers that people are voting on the basis of? Well, first thing is that we've noticed, and this is emerging, that the big driver here in this election, not the only big driver, appears to be education in a way that we haven't seen in uh, past elections that uh, less educated Americans are really trending in a way that we didn't see four, eight, 12 years ago towards the red side of the ballot, towards Donald Trump. That's really where his base is. Partisanship, party identification is certainly important to that, but education has emerged over the last few weeks as the real driver 
that America seems to be divided between the haves and the haves nots on education. And we're gonna see that play out. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what's gonna happen. The big issues are, are economic here and COVID. Americans are terrified about what's gonna happen in the next three or four months and they don't trust Donald Trump uh, to deliver on his promises. At the same time, Americans are also concerned about economic performance. And many Americans worry that DIMs are gonna come in and they're gonna raise taxes and they're gonna stifle the economy. That's why President Trump has been hammering on the notion that uh, Joe Biden is gonna shut down the economy to protect us from COVID. Uh, while Joe Biden is saying, what's the president's plan for preventing uh, the economy from collapsing because of COVID. You've got a very classic election here that we've seen many times before with Dems versus ours. What the big cross cutter is appears to be education, where Americans with education, an advanced degree, uh, two years at a community college, additional training, et cetera, et cetera, are bending towards Dem while Americans who've been left behind in the educational sweepstakes are bending towards Trump. And uh, we'll just have to see how this plays out. Professor Light, that was so insightful. Thank you so much. And to close it all off, we always like to ask our guests for maybe a word of advice, a life lesson, something for us you know, Wagner students going through all this insanity in the world. <laughs> you have a remarkable career. If you had to leave us with a word here, what would you have to say? You know, my uh, best suggestion is to have faith. We have these systems yeah. um, and there is a tendency to despair. I wake up sometimes and uh, in recent months, and today I wake up, I look at the New York Times, I look at the Washington Post, I look at the Wall Street Journal, I, I, I can barely stand to read the papers. What's going to be in there now and what could be possible? I mean, our contemporary media, unfortunately, uh, thrives to some extent on the great controversies. And sometimes we lose track of the indicators that we're still here and we're still loving kind people at some level. That's not to dismiss the hate and the anger that we see every day. But if you're gonna enter this field of public change, of impact, of social change, you've got to persevere. You've got to take care of yourself on both the emotional and physical level. And you have to have faith that you can make a difference in this world even if you think you're kind of naive about it, don't let go. Because once you let go, you're going to see that kind of floating away from you and you're going to regret that you let this tear down uh, your belief in the possible. I do believe that one person can make a difference. I still believe that. So can a million persons uh, working together. But you, you, you just can't let go of it. Uh, as you're making these risky decisions, as you're taking tough stands. I don't like it when I read what some of my colleagues write about me um, on Twitter and Facebook and so forth. It's not very nice. But then again, <laughs> I kind of take it and say, well, 
you know what? I got to take it because I believe in where we're headed. And that's what you got to do. Faith in the possible. How's that? Honestly, that is the best advice anyone has given us in 2020. <laughs> I love this oh, so oh, much. Oh, oh, yes. Make sure you get a good calculator too. Yeah. <laughs> this is in the heart. We want yeah. at Wagner to have strong knowledge. We want to be clear on evidence and so forth. But it's down here in the gut where you're going to be called to make tough decisions. And to me, at the end of the day, uh, faith is going to help you do it. It really does. Especially in 2020, I think it's so easy oh. to get disillusioned. And yeah, I think faith but and wait hope until is 2024. So, <laughs> oh my God. You know, we've got to come together <laughs> to see if we can figure out a better way to do this. We're all hoping that maybe this will all get better when Donald Trump leaves. Joe Biden have said, has said that. He says to people, you know, there'll be an epiphany. Just having him out of office is going to make things better. My perspective, that's pretty naive. The underlying forces that produced Donald Trump, those are still with us. We've got some work to do to heal this, this nation and this world. And it's not all going to get better just because Donald Trump has moved back to New York City. You know, that's such a good point. In fact, I remember uh, you quoting this book in one of your articles. The book was President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. Oh, yes. And the quote that you pulled out was, Trump's rise to power is more a symptom than a cause of the current populist crisis. I think that you just summarized what that means for us so well. He's the perfect candidate of our times. Yeah. I didn't say absolutely. for our times. He is the product of what we have created through our media habits, through uh, unfriending friends who take other positions from us, through our attitudes and so forth. We are the ones uh, who have created these deep red and blue divisions. And we got work to do. We got to come together. Absolutely. Professor Thank Light, you so much. I just, <laughs> Professor Light, before we close, just one if you have to, if you were a betting man, when <laughs> would you say, give me a date for when you think we'll have a final result for this election? Do you have Ooh. an educated or uneducated guess? I do. Ooh. I would bet we will not know until March 2nd. Wow. I don't know why. Okay. But I suspect that the Supreme Court with the arrival of the new justice, that there'll be enough disruption and that we will have multiple cases moving towards the courts through red and blue states. Now, what's the over-under on that? How much would I bet? Yeah, what's the over-under? Yes. <laughs> let me just say that the better guess, I think, the more hopeful guess, is December 7th, which is my birthday. Um, oh. will, will it be November 2nd? Will it be November 4th? I think you're going to need a couple of weeks because of issues surrounding uh, legal challenges and our courts are primed for this. So we'll see. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Thank you so much, Professor Light. This was an amazing interview. You've given well, us so much insight. It's, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. Thanks for having me. <laughs>